Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. It's great to have your company again. Now, last night was amazing. With apart from our viewers in Australia and New Zealand, there were viewers in the UK, the United States, and would you believe Saudi Arabia? So, just a reminder on how to watch Alan Jones on ADH.TV, so you can tell your friends. It's easy. They go to the website ADH.TV, and that's where they can always watch, and it's free. Or you can go to the App Store and Google Play to download the ADH app to watch on your television. Alan Jones is live and on demand Monday to Thursday at 8pm. This is your new nightly home of common sense where we discuss the issues which matter to you, the voter, which others seem to be too afraid to talk about. But look, I touched on this last night towards the end of my interview with the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. This is disgraceful behaviour we're seeing from members of the public in relation to vandalising core flutes. That's those political signs. As Josh Frydenberg said, on one side of the street in his electorate of Kuyong, all the Frydenberg core flutes are vandalised, and on the other side, the so-called independence core flutes are untouched. Why is that? I argued he, the Treasurer, ought to escalate this issue and make it front and centre of his campaign. It's about the fabric of Australian life. Why the hell, in the year 2022, should someone who's offering himself for public office, an Australian with Jewish parents, why should his core flutes be vandalised with anti-Semitic symbols like swastikas on his forehead? You see, the left purport, don't they, to be the most tolerant of people, yet they resort to these ugly ta tactics to try to oust a political opponent. There can be no place for this in Australia. Today, more news that video footage has emerged overnight of a left-wing vandal wearing a Sea Shepherd jumper defacing a Frydenberg sign. The local, Alan Stevens, who has a Frydenberg sign outside his Mont Albert home, supporting the Treasurer's re-election bid in Kuyong, says he's been targeted multiple times over the sign. Josh Frydenberg needs to take these people on and make this front and centre of his campaign. Is vandalism in this country no longer a crime? If this stuff is allowed to flourish, there's not much left of our democracy. What do you think? Email me, Jones at adh.tv. I saw a headline recently which would resonate with us all. We are sobering up with a pounding inflation headache. That may be overstating it, as I will discuss later, notwithstanding that the cash rate has gone from 0.1 to 0.35%. Let's be honest, they're still giving money away. Nonetheless, the war in Ukraine has spread risk around the world, forcing higher energy prices, and that has impacted on global markets. The real problem is that what is called non-discretionary inflation is much higher than the CPI. That is the price of goods and services that households need, fuel and food and housing and health. Those prices are going up. And as a result, the value of your wage is going backwards. One argument is jack up wages to match the CPI. But given that at least some of our inflation is imported, the last thing we need is a wages breakout. The inflation issue is not easy to address, but you've got to avoid oversimplification. The obvious answer is to boost national productivity. But how do you do that when employers are short of labour? 
when the supply of materials is stretched to the limit, particularly following the floods. But if that's not enough, last Friday, the Australian energy market operator, which runs the electricity grid, showed that the East Coast wholesale price of electricity jumped 141% in the March quarter. $36 a megawatt hour this time last year, $87 now. Why? Well, 80% of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels, in particular coal. And with the war in Ukraine, the price of coal has gone through the roof, and this is being felt with wholesale electricity prices in Australia, where though the climate change zealots and all those semi-brain-dead fake independents would not know, coal-fired power stations supply about two-thirds of our electricity. Thermal coal is used to generate electricity. We have a stack of it. It's the best in the world. But the export price of thermal coal from Newcastle in the last 12 months has more than tripled. $100 a tonne to $350 a tonne. Now, why is the wholesale price of energy important? Well, it comprises 30 to 40% of your electricity bill. And so, as one of Australia's largest corporate energy advisors has said, there is no doubt power bills will increase. Prices will need to reflect the increases we've seen in the wholesale market. In other words, forget all the other election nonsense that you hear. Bill Clinton was right in 1992. It's the economy, stupid. So, put wages and inflation together with interest rates and energy bills and what you're paying in the supermarket for your vegetables, your beef, your lamb, and on your childcare and your car maintenance, it sure as hell is the economy that will focus voters' attention. Which brings us to the biggest elephant in the room. I'm the first to concede, and it should be repeated, that Josh Frydenberg in managing the economy has done a hell of a job on employment and unemployment. But Mr Morrison is wont to say Labor can't manage money. Well, there are 1.65 million voters between the ages of 18 and 24 on May 21. They'll be the ones who down the track will bear the burden of our heaviest debt load since 1956, when Australia was paying down the debts of World War II. The government is ready to tell us that the pandemic spending, emergency spending, is over, but the debt continues to climb. You see, before anyone had heard of Wuhan and BATS, as Peter Harcher wrote recently, and I quote, this government already had the worst fiscal record of any post-war government. Morrison's debt run-up makes Whitlam, Hawke, Keating, Rudd and Gillard look like skinflints. Harcher went on, quote, the coalition inherited gross national debt at 20% of GDP. By the time COVID struck, they'd run it up to 28%. There had been no crisis. Yet it created the biggest load of national debt since 1958, unquote. Now, I've been talking about debt and water and dams and energy for years till I was blue in the face. But it seems no one cares about debt. But those will who today are only 8 or 9 or 15 or 20, we're leaving this debt to them. The gross national debt now is 42.5% of GDP, 42.5%. Whitlam was regarded as an economic dunce, 24.5% of GDP. Someone in government is going to have to get serious about managing the money because the budget papers tell us that the debt will climb to 44.9% of GDP in two years' time. Forget the politics. That's almost twice as bad as the worst performance by a Labor government in the last 50 years. As I've said, the interest rate issue is critical. And if the interest rates rise, so too does the debt, which has to be funded. We're paying $18 billion a year in interest 
on the national debt. And the budget forecasts that that will rise to $26 billion a year within four years, $2 billion a month. There is a general consensus that because our defence capability is so run down, we couldn't defend ourselves against a barrow full of marbles. But there's the answer. Your defence budget is $48 billion, but your interest bill is more than half of that of $26 billion. Yet, there was a Treasury update almost two weeks ago, which forecast the annual interest bill could be $12 billion a year higher than the $26 billion. That's up to $38 billion because of rising market interest rates. Think of it. That would bring our interest bill on our debt to almost equal with our defence budget at almost twice as much as the total education budget. This is insanity. And remember there are what they call structural costs. You and I would call them unavoidable costs, healthcare, aged care and the NDIS. We've already been warned that those costs will go through the roof and debt doesn't matter. Give me a break. Our debt is at embarrassing levels, as is the interest on the debt and both are climbing. I'm simply saying, if you put this mix together, inflation, wages, interest rates and debt, this is a toxic and lethal cocktail. It is time these issues and these issues alone were debated as a central component of this election campaign. Well, into the second half of the election, the polls of yesterday suggest the coalition's in trouble. Reality has to be faced. It's unfashionable to note that when Tony Abbott became leader of the opposition, things changed from a deeply divided party, having gone through Brendan Nelson and then Malcolm Turnbull. Tony Abbott united the party in opposition to the carbon tax. Remember, he ran so hard against Kevin Rudd that the Labor leader was removed by his own side. Then came Julia Gillard. And hardly a commentator thought that the Abbott coalition had a chance in 2010. It was a draw, reducing the Gillard government to minority status. Tony Abbott maintained the unity of his party and ran hard into the 2013 election. His victory at that election was a historic landslide. In 2010 and 2013, Tony Abbott won 25 seats from Labor. Only four men in the history of conservative politics since World War II have taken the coalition from opposition to government at an election. Robert Menzies, Malcolm Fraser, John Howard and Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott won the day, proving himself one of the most formidable enemies of the far left in Australia. And that is why I suppose he's been attacked and demonised for years. Consider what Tony Abbott said when he was elected to the federal parliament and consider where we are today, minus Abbott. He said, I stand for active government, not big government. I stand for government which gets off people's backs, not government which opts out of the future because it cannot face hard decisions. He said, I stand for government which backs Australia's families with real policies and not just platitudes. Unquote. Well, given that the polls suggest that the party he led to a landslide victory in 2013 is now under siege, I thought it timely to speak to him. Tony Abbott, thank you for your time. Why do you think three weeks out the polls are 53-47 to Labor? Alan, it's not easy to govern in these times, given the economic and the strategic challenges that we face. And while, uh, as the Prime Minister himself uh, has accepted, uh, all governments, including his, make mistakes, I'm still convinced that by far the best option for Australia right now is the coalition under Scott Morrison. And I probably should declare at the outset of this discussion that I do want the Morrison government to win I will be voting Liberal and whatever dissatisfaction people might sometimes have with the current government, I would, I would 
I would want them to remember uh, that government spending will always be lower, uh, taxes will always be less, regulation will always be less burdensome, political correctness will always be less rampant, and national security will always be taken more seriously under the coalition than under Labor. Nonetheless, there are people who would say on all of those issues that the Liberal Party has lost its way. For example, uh, there was massive spending in the budget. There's a lot of spending promises now at a time when inflation is on the march. Has the Liberal Party of Menzies and, and Abbott and Howard lost its way? I think that the government has been dealing with particularly difficult circumstances. The pandemic uh, was uh, an absolutely unprecedented and largely uh, previously unanticipated event. And as uh, even John Howard said at the start of the pandemic, you've got to throw the rule book out the window. Well, um, I'm not so sure that you can ever really throw the rule book out the window, but certainly there was a, a lot of pressure on the government to throw the rule, back, rule book out the window. Um, let's not forget that the government had, uh, without any help from the opposition, without any help uh, from the Senate, gradually got us back to a position where we were almost in surplus. Uh, then, of course, when the pandemic hit, you had uh, panicky state governments uh, closing down businesses, uh, ordering people to stay at home, uh, putting the economy into hibernation. The government had to do something uh, to stop uh, um, really an economic wasteland and they had to spend. Now, you can argue about uh, how much and how long, but they certainly had to spend. And so I think you've got to give the government a bit of leeway on the fiscal front, but Obviously, uh, the pandemic is now effectively behind us. Uh, the laws of economics need to be respected. Uh, we do have to get spending under control. Uh, the quicker, the better. Uh, we do have to ensure that really outside of national security and economic infrastructure, any additional spending, any new spending uh, is, uh, is funded uh, from savings with existing spending. Let, that me, was just the rule let me just take you the problem. Howard Scott had my rule, and that needs to be the rule going forward. But just let me take the problems that Scott Morrison faces talking reality. The Liberal Party was wiped out at the WA elections. It was wiped out at the South Australian elections. And in New South Wales, as you know, there's deep-seated anger that members of the party weren't allowed to choose their candidates. Now, you led the campaign in 2018 for what you called the Rose Hill Resolution, Rose Hill Racecourse, to democratise the party. What's happened to that? Well, the Rose Hill resolutions were substantially adopted by the State Council of the Liberal Party uh, a couple of months after the event. And under uh, the resolutions, uh, uh, as implemented in the party's constitution, uh, every bona fide member of the party uh, is supposed to yeah. vote. Right in pre-selections for local candidates. It didn't happen. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, in most of the pre-selections for this election, that didn't happen. Uh, there was a lot of shenanigans on state executive, uh, which uh, meant that the pre-selections were delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. A lot of good candidates dropped out and eventually uh, many of these pre-selections uh, were, were waived at the last minute 
in favour of, of of head office picks. Now, and, and that hasn't that's helped. Far from it's far from ideal. Yeah, um, I think there's a there's a lot of disillusionment uh, amongst the rank and file membership. Yeah. That said, yeah. in the end, you join the Liberal Party um, to defeat the Labor Party to produce a better government. And my advice to Liberal members in New South Wales, whoever disillusioned and disappointed they might be, is to get behind the candidates uh, and let's have an argument after the election about what we need to do very to make good. sure that we never very good. allow it. Very, well, very well said. Just talking about the better government, you have said that winning elections is the start but not the end of successful political leadership. But the whole point of winning, you say, is to be the best possible government while you are there. Now, in your instances, there was no, no one briefed against another. Um, you weren't able to enjoy that luxury with a person like Turnbull wanting your job. But leadership's also about judgment, isn't it? Correct, correct. And <laughs> I guess uh, the judgment I made going into the <laughs> 2013 election and coming out of the 2013 election <laughs> was it having watched the... Uh, the cannibalism inside the Labor Party at very close quarters, we wouldn't repent it ourselves. <laughs> we we did, I regret to say, yeah. uh, engage yeah. in the same and we've kind gone, of uh, revolving... And, and we've, we've gone back... But... We've gone backwards ever since. But, but, Alan, but Alan, look, um, Scott Morrison has restored uh, a degree of unity, um, substantial Cabinet discipline. Uh, there's There's no serious figures inside the federal government who are sniping at him. Uh, we all want Scott Morrison to emerge from this campaign victorious, renewed in the Prime Ministership. Let me just ask you about China. Have we been along with the rest of the world naive in thinking that liberalisation in China under Deng Xiaoping would stay, but that naivety has led to the monster of the Chinese Communist Party, which hasn't changed its Marxist, Leninist ways? Do you think with the monster that's been created, and the contest that the West is now entering with communist China will be every bit as difficult as the West had with the old Soviet Union. Um, I think we were, we, were, we were reasonable in thinking that over time, ec economic liberalisation would inevitably lead to a degree of political liberalisation. And I think that was the judgment that the Chinese Communist Party adopted eventually, and that's yeah. why they've stopped yes. uh, economic liberalisation. So, 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 so had the Deng Xiaoping uh, to get riches, glorious reforms continued indefinitely, I, I think sooner or later we would have uh, a very different China. But mm. the Communist Party, yep. in the end, is yep. all about uh, the party rules, east-west, uh, north-south, party rules... And, and uh, so now we've got the, the current, uh, uh, I suppose, reassertion of uh, totalitarianism yeah, absolutely. inside yeah, China. Absolutely. Well, no. and, and plainly, this, this is making an enormous difference to Why? the wider so, world. So not just, just coming at the world. difference, now, sorry, world. but we face this crisis in the Solomons and the Prime Minister said that a Chinese naval base would cross a red line and we are not having it. Now, as your friend Greg Sheridan and my friend have said, and I quote him, the Australian Defence Force is almost insanely structured to meet none of our strategic needs. And he says, not one of our services, Navy, Air Force or Army, has any strategic strike power. Every one of our major defence programs is in disarray with their scheduled to deliver capability. So far into the future, 
that it's in the realm of science fiction. What are your thoughts about Greg's comments? Well, I certainly think that uh, it's important to accelerate our military build-up and it's important not to get so hung up on having a small amount of the very best that we don't quickly get uh, as much as possible of what's actually good and effective. I should also say, Alan, that the armed forces that uh, the Howard government created uh, were very much shaped by the experience of East Timor, um, which was an Australian uh, intervention in uh, some very difficult circumstances that East Timor found itself in the process of separating from Indonesia. Now, now those armed forces uh, uh, would be quite capable of acting in the South Pacific um, should the government choose to do that. I'm not suggesting that they would or should, uh, but certainly they would be capable of acting mm. in the South Pacific. But whether they'd be able to act yes. uh, in the Taiwan Straits, um, given the current circumstances, but, but given, is another given... story. But, but just at the moment, Alan, just at the moment, Alan, uh, we've plainly got a situation where the government of the Solomon Islands and individuals within that government look to have been bought by China. It, it seems to have been a Chinese invasion yes. uh, of the Solomon yeah. Islands right. Parliament. Um, but, but when and, we and say, I think we but, quite, but I mean, but Tony, but Tony, when we tell China not to cross like, the red line, sorry, when we tell China not to cross the red line, what do we do if they cross the red line? Well, we do not want to to telegraph our, our, our response. Um, uh, maybe that was one of the difficulties in the Ukraine. Uh, uh, too much was telegraphed in advance and therefore uh, the Russian dictator felt that he was uh, perhaps not up against as much as it right. turned out he is up That's against. Right. So, That's so right. I, I, I'm not sure that we should be telegraphing precisely what might be done I think the Prime Minister is right to indicate uh, to the Chinese, to the Solomon Islanders and indeed to the wider world that we are taking this extremely seriously, yes. as we should. Yes. Because as you might remember, Alan, uh, the battle for Guadalcanal uh, was the great strategic Quite. battle of the Pacific War. Absolutely. Uh, and a hostile base in the Solomon Islands yeah. would certainly be mm. very well placed to threaten trade yeah. between Australia and the United States. Just a quick one before you go. UN officials have told Australia they should abolish the coal industry by 2030. Surely this is self-destructive to abolish the coal industry because global coal, the use of it, will not decline. Our export markets would be taken by other countries like China and India, and our coal-fired power stations using Australian coal produce fewer greenhouse gas emissions, so close our coal industry and grow the industry in China and Indonesia, you increase carbon dioxide emissions. How does any of that make sense? Well, it doesn't, and it would be easier to take these so-called UN officials seriously if they gave the same instructions to China, but Correct. plainly they Correct. won't give the same instructions Correct. to China, which just goes to show that this, is, this whole thing is a one-sided attack on the economic strength of the democracies and it should be treated uh, with a degree of contempt. Good on you. Always good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Hope we can talk again soon. We really appreciate your sure insights. There he is. What an outstanding figure within the Liberal Party and in terms of national government. Never given a fair go, though. Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister of Australia. 
Well, look, it all reminds me a bit of coronavirus. Remember the alarmism and hysteria that ensnared most Australians? Now, it's interest rates, which, as I said earlier, have gone up from 0.1% to 0.35%, hardly punitive. Nonetheless, headlines today tell us that interest rates are set to take off, or one of the most significant weeks in central banking history, or the increase in the cash rate today is the first since 2010. It's argued that interest rates were loosened in response to the onset of the pandemic. Now we have inflation rates that haven't been seen for ages. The US is 8.5%, its highest in 40 years. Australia is 5.1%, the highest since the GST was introduced in mid-2000. Now, admittedly, the oil price, as I said, has soared from US $77 a barrel at the start of the year to currently trading at US $107 a barrel, but it did climb to $128 US in March. This is inflationary, of course, pushing up the price of everything. It's the same with gas prices, as Europe struggles to find alternative sources of supply to Russia. It's reported that European gas is costing about five times what it did a year ago. Of course, with everyone chasing gas supplies, the price goes up, and that, of course, is inflationary. Obviously, the Board of the Reserve Bank has had concerns about moving the cash rate during a federal election campaign, but surely there can't be any Australian who believes that interest rates near zero can be sustained. And the longer inflation persists, the worse the problem gets. There are strong arguments for lifting interest rates, and there is alarmist talk about that, what that will do to household cost-of-living pressures. Mind you, if the Reserve Bank is trying to curb inflation, as I said last night to Josh Friedberg, the federal budget pumped billions of dollars into the pockets of consumers already enjoying low interest rates and unemployment at or below 4%. And to date in this mad election campaign, the spending and the promises have no limits. It's as if inflation didn't exist. To date, the coalition have promised spending totaling $2.9 billion and Labor $4.03 billion. But is all this interest rate alarmism justified? Firstly, in regard to mortgage holders, a third of households have mortgages. The other two thirds are split between renters and people who have paid their mortgage off. But if inflation is the consequence of uncontrolled spending and too many people chasing the same goods, forcing up prices, then a slight interest rate rise takes a chunk out of disposable income and these households will cut back on purchases. That takes the pressure off prices. Then, of course, for two-thirds of households that don't have a mortgage, interest rate increases help their savings, which currently are earning next to nothing. So higher interest rates boost their disposable income. Then, of course, you might borrow less if you use your money to earn a higher level of interest. Or if purchases, as a result, are delayed, that reduces the total demand in the economy. Now, this is important because the price of anything is determined by how many people want it. If the demand falls, prices fall. The reality is no one benefits from too much inflation. It erodes the value of our savings. A dollar tomorrow is worth much less than a dollar today. So as Jessica Irvine writes sensibly today, that means, quote, we all have to keep working much longer to fund the same standard of living in retirement. It's a portion of pain now to protect us into the future, unquote. In summary, the alarmism and headlines are hardly justified. Let's get on with life. We're never going to be able to live with the interest rates we have enjoyed since 2010.
Well, we'll be crossing each week to America to our very popular correspondent there, Peggy Grandy. She served post-presidency as executive assistant to Ronald Reagan for 10 years. This gave her a behind-the-scenes view of President Reagan's interactions from everyone, from the general public to heads of state, including Mikhail Gorbachev, Margaret Thatcher and even a saint. Mother Teresa. Peggy joins us for our weekly insight into America. Peggy, lovely to have you on board again. Nice to see you. Uh, let's start with President Biden because he came to office promising to build back better and declaring that America was back, whatever that means. But in March, the US Studies Centre released its annual State of the United States report based on survey research, trade and investment data, historical comparisons, and it found that COVID continues to ravage the United States with a per capita death toll more than four times seen elsewhere across the G20. Inflation and crime are back at the top of the US domestic political agenda, issues not experienced at such levels since the 1970s. The bulk of his legislative agenda is stalled and the Republicans could wallop the Democrats in the midterm elections. Peggy, what is the mood like in America? Well, let me thank you, Alan, for having me back on tonight. It's such a pleasure. And I'm so glad to see you back on air. And I'm thrilled. I'm sure like your viewers are that you did not retire. You, you just reloaded. So we have so much to talk about. Thank you so much for having me on. And I would say overall, the overwhelming feeling of the mood in America now is concern. Americans have lived with this president and under this presidency for over a year now. And this was a president who was supposed to be the most experienced, the most unifying. And what are we seeing? We're seeing crisis and disaster on every front. And the American people may not know the ins and outs of policy. They know that the American government is spending far too much money, but they feel the effect of those policies every day. Every time they fill up their car at the gas pump or go to buy groceries, um, their energy prices are high, housing is high, and they're feeling like their concerns are falling on deaf ears. In fact, if you saw any clips from the White House Correspondents' Dinner this past weekend, Trevor Noah, the comedian, made a joke about things are looking up under President Biden. Yeah, that's Gas right. is up. Yeah, up everything's is going up. up. Well, Peggy, Joe Biden rolled his head back in laughter and clapped her, yeah. laughing. Just the American to people that, are not amused by this. Add to all that, Peggy, what's the significance, therefore, of the Justice Department investigating the son of President Biden? Eight months out from midterm elections, federal prosecutors are closing in on the business dealings of Hunter Biden. Peggy, all those stories about Hunter Biden's laptop abandoned in a Delaware repair shop in 2019 and supposedly containing a trove of emails and texts and sexual material and financial documents, reportedly detailing how he regularly used his father's political clout to capitalise on overseas business dealings. The mainstream press ignored the issue during the presidential campaign, but the emails suggested that he had helped arrange a meeting with the Ukrainian gas company Burisma with his father in April 2015, Biden was vice president, and Hunter Biden was lavishly remunerated. Then there's the Chinese energy firm, CEFC, which over the course of 14 months paid almost $5 million US dollars to entities controlled by Hunter Biden and his uncle. Twitter blocked links to the story. 17 months later, here we are, the New York Times and the Washington Post have resurrected the scandal and both publications have verified key elements of the initial story. Peggy, where is this going to take us? 
Well, it'll be interesting to watch where it does take us because this is not new information at all. And I would argue that not only was it ignored, this story was buried intentionally and collaboratively by big tech media and the mainstream media. They didn't want to touch this because they thought it might influence the election. And so all this time later, we're having to finally cover it. So it'll be really interesting to see where this leads. But there are new um, developments coming out, like seeing that Hunter Biden's business partner visited the White House 27 times. Those aren't just casual visits and Joe Biden can no longer say he knew nothing about his son's business dealings. Can you imagine if this was a Trump kid? And what the American people really wanna know is, is Joe Biden compromised? These dealings with Russia and China, with his son, do those actually lead back to the president? Is he compromised? They buried information about Joe Biden and we know that they elevated with without evidence, stories about Donald Trump. Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, CNN described the story as dubious. A Washington Post columnist called it a non-scandal. The Wall Street Journal wouldn't buy it. So the president has the war in Ukraine. You've mentioned soaring inflation, cost of living pressures, coronavirus, and his son, Hunter Biden. How's he managing all this? Well, we know he's not managing it, nor does he even seem to be engaged in what's happening. When the Easter Bunny is controlling his movements at a White House event and he wanders aimlessly off the stage yes. and shaking hands with people who aren't there, we know this is not going well. It's really sad and it's actually very dangerous. Well, just on that cognitive decline, Peggy, how could anyone, let alone the Democrats, contemplate Biden running again? Let's listen to this that will enhance our underlying effort to accommodate the Russian oligarchs uh, and make sure we take their take their their ill-begotten gains. <laughs> We're going to accommodate them. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy. Uh, yeah. Kleptocracy and klep the guys who are the kleptocracy. <laughs> but these are bad guys. Oh, oh, Peggy, that's the 79-year-old president. Uh, the West is facing struggles on many fronts, an axis between Russia and China, which includes Iran, North Korea and a few others. China pursuing the greatest peacetime military build-up we've ever seen. Iran moving to nuclear weapons. North Korea and China enlarging their nuclear weapons arsenal. The Taliban's rampant in Afghanistan. A wounded Russia may be more dangerous than ever. Peggy. Is the President of the United States, the leader of the free world, strong enough, skillful enough, and sufficiently a master of these issues to hold the West together? Well, I think the video evidence proves for itself that the world and the nation have great great rights to be concerned. You know, his speechwriters and his staffers certainly don't do him any favors. I think they should take more notes from maybe Dr. Seuss and keep it to short, simple words like hop on pop or go dog go. If he can't even read a teleprompter that's been loaded with words for him, we certainly know he's not comprehending the policies behind those. And so it would be funny if it weren't so dangerous, but our nation yeah. is terribly worried and I'm sure the world is watching with great concern as well. Yes. We know a strong America makes for a safer world. And we have the opposite of that happening right now. Right. I was just thinking Joe Biden and comparing him to Jimmy Carter. All Jimmy Carter's strategic judgments were wrong. He was perennially weak and confused. His politics were erratic and inconsistent. He said there was a malaise in American society, but he was the malaise. And voters chose his complete opposite, your man, Ronald Reagan. Do you think that comparison is valid, Peggy? 
I think it's valid, but I don't think it goes far enough. I think the American people these days would take malaise over dangerous. And who thought we would ever long for the days of Jimmy Carter? This is terribly dangerous. And we're only a year plus in. So we've got two and a half more years of this presidency. And the world is taking notes. I think our enemies are becoming emboldened. And America is really in a dangerous place right now. Um, mm. So mm. I do believe that on the heels, just like you said, of Jimmy Carter, it prepared the way for a great leader like Ronald Reagan to come. So I'm hoping waiting in the wings is a great leader who can mm. once once again restore yeah. America to its greatness. But the next so, two and a half years are going to be really rough. So just on that point you made, and finally, do Xi and Putin, you think, see Biden and Kamala Harris as a profound weakness, therefore it is the time to strike? Well, I think we all fear that. We've seen already what happened with the disaster in Afghanistan and, of course, what's happening now in Ukraine. The, our enemies are emboldened and they're probably strategically looking at, is this the time to yes, make a move? Yes. Joe Biden has given them no reason yes. to hesitate or take pause. Absolutely. And the world is safe when America is strong and we are seeing weakness and feebleness coming out of this White House. Absolutely. Peggy, great to talk to you. Thank you for your insights. Uh, you'll be back next week and every week. Lovely to talk to you again. Have a good week and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Grandy, our American correspondent with wonderful insights into the problems in America and they're very real indeed. Well, now let's go to one of the most formidable intellects in Australian politics. The leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament, Mark Latham. Mark, thank you for your time. But now, look, may I begin by asking you and the viewers to watch this absurd exchange in Senate estimates between the outstanding South Australian Liberal Senator Alex Antich and, can you believe, Professor Brendan Murphy, head of the Federal Department of Health. This clip courtesy of Rebel News. Let's hear it. Righto. Well, I'm going to finish up then, because this hasn't been very helpful, with a very simple question for the department, and that is one which has troubled me for a great deal of time with the bureaucracy here. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? <coughs> department of Health. Definition of a man. Definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. Basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are... There are a variety of definitions, and I, I think a simple perhaps, one. perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer, we should take that on notice. You're going to take on notice yeah. the question of what a woman is. No, well, there, there are a variety. There, it, it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's a very contested space at the moment, Senator. It's not I just mean, a woman who's born a woman, but there are definitions in terms hilarious. of how people identify themselves. So we're happy to provide. Our working that definition is on one of the, I'm, I've only been here two years. That's the best thing I've seen thus far. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Mark, what do you make of that? Well, it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment to the country and it's what the Liberal Party is, is allowed to happen in bureaucracies all over the Commonwealth. Uh, I see this in the New South Wales Parliament and New South Wales Public Service. They run courses on degendered language unconscious bias, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, cultural sensitivity, they do everything except their job. And for the Commonwealth Health Department not to know that a woman is an adult biological female, there's only one definition, is just, you know, beyond comprehension. And it just shows you, Alan, that, that there's a new secular, secular religion out there based around the new alphabet, LGBTIQAP, and all the rest of it, they're starting to run out of letters. 
And the reality is that at the last census in Australia, 1,500 people identified as transgender. To listen to these pathetic, woke, confused bureaucrats and the media and, and the rest of them who carry on about it, you'd think there was 15 million. So basic common sense, we're always told to follow the science. Well, the biological science is clear. And to have Murphy there, oh, I've got to say, I've always thought he's a bit of a dill. And this is a guy wanting to run our lives, close us down, lock us in our houses, yeah. tell us to make certain health choices. If he can't define a woman, why would we listen to him on any other matter? Well, Mark, the mob, to our viewers, I should say, the mob that you saw there around Murphy were part of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Taxpayers' money, Mark, have you got any clue who these people are? Well, there's a relic of the Julia Gillard era set up at that time. But wouldn't you think... The Liberal government that came in in 2013 would have got rid of these people by now, saving millions, many millions on the Commonwealth budget, which is uh, desperately in debt and deficit. So this is the problem with the modern Liberal Party. It they is. surrender, they wave the white flag when the woke stuff comes up. They're too scared of doing anything about it in case they trend on Twitter. I always think if I'm on trending on tw Twitter, I'm actually saying the right thing. That's a, a badge of honour. You know you're headed in the right direction. But they're scared of the lefties on social media. They're scared of their own shadow. They're scared of doing anything that's mm. in line with the people who vote for them. Well, Alex, Alex Antich, thankfully, is a Liberal who doesn't fit those categories. But he asked almost amusingly, how can the agency be expected to elevate women in the workplace and reduce inequality when there seems to be confusion about what a woman is? He just wanted a simple definition. But look at the silence. Let's just see this again. Just look at the silence when he asks the question. Let's have a look at this again. Righto. Well, I'm going to finish up then because this hasn't been very helpful with a very simple question for the department, and that is one which has troubled me for a great deal of time with the bureaucracy here. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? <coughs> department of Health. Definition of a man. Definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. Basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable, Mark, isn't it? I mean, well, this yeah. is... How, how can you help women yeah. if you can't define what a woman is? And, and Murphy says there are a variety of definitions. Well, yeah. He, he, well, and Antich said, Alex Antich said, well, just give me a simple one. Yeah, well, that's right. But, you know, the left orthodoxy, and Albanese has repeated this in the election campaign, is for people to self-identify, to basically determine their own gender despite biological science. So that's a nonsense. But the other thing about this uh, gender equality outfit... Uh, soaking up many millions of taxpayers' dollars. We've had equal pay uh, in Australia since the time of the Whitlam government. And the gender pay gap, so-called, is simply a reflection of the reality that as much as the left wing don't like it, only women can have babies. And there was some data, they don't collect it anymore at Commonwealth level, but a majority of the professions leaving university, uh, the women were being paid more than the men. But obviously, when women have children and drop out of the workforce and and lose their ranking in the seniority of their career, um, uh, the, um, the, the pay gap opens up. But that's completely artificial and not a reflection of opportunity in the workplace, the equal pay laws that we have, and the fact that in, most, uh, in many professions now, most notably uh, the medical profession, obviously teaching, 
um, uh, majority of, of, of GP doctors in Australia are female. Lawyers, the law is overwhelmingly female dominated now. So women are moving ahead in the professions they yeah. want to join yes, quite. At, uh, at, a, at a good salary, and that's a great thing. But Mark, don't Labor and the Greens on their party platforms make it clear that men can be women? And this, all, this stuff's being taught in schools. Well, they, they do, and it goes to the heart of this issue about protection of girls and women in sport. Because uh, no father of a daughter wants to see his 15-year-old daughter facing up to a 15-year-old Mitchell Johnson in cricket or a Brett Lee, or in rugby league, a 15-year-old Jared Warrior Hargraves running at a 15-year-old girl in what's supposed to be girl sport. So uh, some girl, a girl is going to be badly injured yeah. if we continue down yeah. this path. And the unfairness of the competition is paramount because uh, obviously uh, a male swimmer or runner or high jumper or shot putter or discus thrower will outcompete a biological woman in the same mm. competition and, yeah. and those women lose the gold medal, a spot on the podium yeah. or even a spot in the final. They could have trained all of their life and missed out because of the unfairness of it. Well, Alex Antich got it right when he said men can dress however they like, they can wear makeup, they can grow out their hair and do whatever else they like, but the ideologically driven and unscientific belief that changes to their appearance actually makes them women can't be allowed to continue their march through our institutions, he made the simple point, as you've made, a woman is a biological female. Mark, just on this whole business and, and schools and everything, haven't you introduced a bill into the New South Wales Parliament to ban teachers discussing gender identity in schools and you're recommending that parents be informed if a child discusses gender transition with school staff rather than teachers keeping information confidential? Well, that's right, and unfortunately the Perrottet Cabinet has rejected those recommendations. Uh, there's a school on the central coast of New South Wales, Yamina Beach Public School, where they ran a gender fluidity class for year two. These are seven-year-old kids, a seven-year-old boy being told you can be a girl and vice versa. And the deputy principal sent out a circular to the parents that said um, uh, gender is defined by how you feel on the inside and it can be reflected in how you dress and behave and this can change over time. Well, that's not what gender is. Gender is biologically determined. And to say to a seven-year-old, it's, it's how you feel on the inside, what does that mean? And this was billed, Alan, under the cover of what was supposed to be a child protection unit. I've got to say, like a lot of parents, I regard it as child abuse to be confusing seven-year-old children about gender, saying it's a feeling on the inside that they wouldn't even feel. And then our recommendation to the Perrottet Cabinet was that no child uh, should have the ability to tell the school to keep the parents in the dark about these things. The school shouldn't keep the parents in the dark. And the Cabinet rejected the recommendations, meaning that parents can find out um, mm. from friends or associates yes. at the school what's happening, and but they don't find out from the school about a major development affecting uh, their child, not the teacher's child, their child. And I understand you've spoken with families who have been destroyed by schools keeping them in the dark. Well, there's a horror story um, I found out from the north coast of New South Wales where a mum found out the, the, the school had been keeping her in the dark from a friend at the supermarket. So the, the school's been party through a councillor to change a, a boy to a girl at the school give, with a female name and deliberately kept the school in the dark. There's a, a younger sibling part of this who, who came into the the problems it caused, and the mum found out uh, from the, uh, at the supermarket where someone said, isn't it interesting this has happened at the school? She said, what are mm. you talking about? Alan, having heard the mother's crying on the phone, 
having learned of the family destruction this causes, I can just give you the common sense total proposition, no good ever comes from keeping the parents in the dark. Absolutely. No good. Absolutely. And if Dom Perrottet, who's supposed to be a Christian with seven kids, doesn't understand that, uh, he's not worth a cracker. He says he's part of the Parents' Federation, yet his deliberate government policy is to keep parents in the dark. Mm. All right, Mark, leave it there. You're unbelievable. But just keep at it. I mean... You've got to. You have to. You have to. We'll talk to you next week. Good to talk to you. Thanks, there Mark. is Mark Latham, the leader of the One Nation Party in the New South Wales Parliament. What do you make of all of that? Uh, before we go, I wonder when the penny will drop for those Australians, more often than not clueless, elitist politicians who advocate for net zero emissions by 2050. I raised this earlier with Tony Abbott. The corporate world is in on all of this as well. Net zero anything means no coal. It's as simple as that. I hope those in the Hunter Valley or resource-rich Western Australia or Queensland are making their voices heard because if net zero becomes etched into the national psyche, which I fear it has, thanks to weak-kneed politicians on both sides, their jobs will be gone. Going net zero will cost Australia. I've called it a national economic suicide note. I'll be speaking to the National Senator Matt Canavan about this because he's the only one who's publicly brave enough to build the cat. A recent study by the Institute of Public Affairs, who do very good work, found that upcoming coal and gas investments in the New South Wales Hunter region alone are expected to produce 22,000 jobs. That's close to 7% of the region's labour force and four years' worth of job creation. In economic terms, these projects would inject $12 billion into the region, equivalent to around a fifth of its current gross regional product. But guess what? If we stick to going net zero, as the Coalition and Labor want, Australia will forego these benefits. And then what? How do we build better roads? How do we build more schools and hospitals? How do we afford to pay for those on welfare? How do we afford better conditions in aged care? People forget that exporting our resources and minerals pays for nearly all of this stuff, the stuff you and I are lucky enough to enjoy. Politicians who've never read a book or a piece of legislation are trying to eradicate coal from the Australian economy and thereby creating a poorer Australia. That's the Hunter region. The impact on North Queensland will be even more severe. The IPA's report showed that halting the progress of resource projects in the pipeline will stop the creation of 125,000 jobs in North Queensland. That's equivalent to 36% of the current workforce, or 25 years' worth of job creation in this part of the economy, North Queensland. More broadly, going net zero will cost Australia, at the very least, $274 billion in unrealised economic activity and over 478,000 jobs. It's frightening stuff. As I've said, a national economic suicide note. The depressing thing is that both major parties are on board with this nation-destroying nonsense. You get a vote on May 21. It's a vote for the future of Australia. Use it wisely. Well, that's it for me tonight. Thank you for watching on ADH.TV. Make sure you tell your friends and family that they can watch me Monday to Thursday at 8 p.m. The ADH channel is the last line of defence. See you tomorrow night. Good night.